I want to talk about the story of David and Goliath, and this is a story that is certainly familiar to us, one that we probably learned as a child. Parents love to tell their children about this story of David and Goliath, and preachers teach about it, and many lessons have been given certainly on the subject. Everyone loves the story of an underdog, you know, that we, we like to root for the underdog team, and if they win the game or they win the match, then that's just great because they were considered to be um, the lesser of the two teams or lesser of the two that were, that were uh, fighting against each other. But this story really isn't a story of David as an underdog. The, the moment that David stepped foot out onto this valley with Goliath, Goliath was doomed to die. And here's a little history. This history is a story of the introduction of David to becoming the king of Israel. Before the story of David and Goliath happened, Samuel had been commissioned to go to Bethlehem and anoint David as the next king of Israel. And we can read about that in Samuel 16 and verses 1 through 13. Uh, Samuel was afraid to go into Bethlehem to even do this because he was afraid he was going to get put to death if Saul found out what was going on. But God told him, you go in there and you take care of it anyway. Tell them that you're there doing something else and you're offering sacrifice to God, but I want the next king anointed there. So King Saul had certainly lost favor with God due to his unlawful burnt Offerings. If we notice in 1 Samuel 13, verses 7 through 14, we're just going to read verses 13 through 14. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for him a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Also, we find in 1 Samuel 15 and verses 10 through 26 that Saul had also kept the plunder of the defeating of the Amalekites. Notice verse 26 of 1 Samuel 15. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So David was to be the next king. We're going to have that. We're, we notice that happens, but Saul's reign as king is going to diminish and go away. Let's do a little bit of description about David. David was the youngest of Jesse's eight sons and was a shepherd, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 18 when this story is told. The Bible describes him as, in 1 Samuel 16 and 12, ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. So most, most Bible scholars agree that David had some kind of reddish tint to his hair, that he was healthy and handsome according to whatever handsome was in that day. Some people think certain people are handsome and beauty, and some would disagree about that. Even though God doesn't choose someone based on their outward appearance, David 
fit that description. God doesn't look at the outward man as sometimes, uh, as he mentioned to Samuel in the previous uh, seventh verse, it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see a man, see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, sometimes we forget that. We want, we want, and we judge people based on their outward appearance, and we don't look at the heart. But that's what God was telling Samuel. When you're looking for this new king, because several people had come before, several men had come before him, and Samuel thought that that's going to be the king. That's going to be the king, but God rejected them. So he, he kind of chastised Samuel for looking at the outward appearance. So Samuel had been looking at these older brothers and thought that one of them was going to be anointed king, but David appears to be small because of his youth. It is not what Samuel was really kind of looking for. He had in his own mind, he thought the Lord was going to accept so we find that through all this, uh, Samuel or Saul is distressed. After David is anointed to be the next king, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14, but the spirit of the Lord depart, departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now Saul wants one of his servants to go and search out someone that can soothe him because of this distress, that uh, he wants to find someone that can play a harp to soothe his spirit. Then in verse 18, the one of, then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and handsome, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sends for David. David comes and plays his harp for King Saul, and the Bible says in verses 21 through 23, So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul said to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit of God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand, then Saul, Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So we don't know what, the Bible doesn't reveal to us what this distressing spirit was. It could have been just simple depression or anxiety or upset that, that uh, David was going to be, that, God, uh, that Saul had lost favor with God. Could have been some kind of mental illness for all we know. I don't know. But when, when David played the harp for Saul, it soothed him and it made him feel better. So God providentially places David in a position of importance with the king. Remember, it's through the lineage of David that Jesus is to be born. So remember that God always has a plan and he always his will is what always comes out ahead. Now let's notice a little bit about this, the valley of Elah. Now David's set to defend God's name against this enemy, and the battle of Elah 
is about to begin. The Philistines were a Canaanite people that inhabited uh, Israel before the Israelites came into the promised land. And the Israelites were, Israelites were not able to completely conquer the Canaanites and drive them out of this land totally. And then there were battles that happened from time to time between them on a regular basis. And so battling the Philistines, there was nothing new to Saul. Notice in 1 Samuel 14, 47 through 48. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now in the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel, the battle of the Valley of Elah is about to unfold. In the time of this history, the Philistines were trying to advance further up the hill through, Elah, through the Elah Valley towards the heart of Judah and take the cities of Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and Hebron that were inhabited by Israel. And this valley was along the pathway that came from the sea uh, all the way up towards those cities. And so it was a common way to travel. It was a, it was a thoroughfare, if you want to say. And it was here in the Valley of Elah that King Saul engaged the Philistines to stop them. Now you can see on the map here, this is just a, a, um, a modern-day map, but you see the Dead Sea and this, this area over here is Israel. But this is primarily where the Philistines were uh, in power over here. And it was along this area is where Bethlehem and, and uh, Jerusalem and Hebron are. <clears throat> This was certainly a very important battle for King Saul. This was a battle where the winner takes all. In other words, there would just be one battle, and that would be between two warriors, but whichever warrior won, the other would serve. So, uh, and, and sometimes battles apparently were fought this way, and don't know why other than they were just trying to save all their manpower and instead of just killing people. So we can see how important it was that whoever the winner was, they needed to win the battle. Whoever was fighting needed to win the battle. Let's notice a few more slides here. You can see uh, here Jerusalem up here in this area, and Bethlehem down here, and then a little farther down is, is Hebron. But it's right over in this area is where this Valley of Elah is, and it's not really that far. It's about 16 miles from Jerusalem as the crow flies, and about 14 miles from the area of Bethlehem. So it's right down here in this valley where this all happens. This course of, is a modern-day uh, aerial photograph of, of the area with agriculture in that area. So here's the battle setting in 1 Samuel 17. Now, now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, 
and were gathered at Soko. And Soko is right over here in this hill, and there's some remnants, I guess, you can find in that area right there, but that's where Soko was, which belonged to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah, which is, excuse me, over there. In Ephes de Mim is what, and I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they camped in the valley of Elah. <coughs> so here's where the Philistines were on this side, camped along here, and they say this was kind of like their encampment or maybe their support area over here in this area, but there's where all the battlefield was, or the, I should say, all the army of the Philistines, and here's where all the army of the Israelites were on this side, and these are kind of hilly areas over here on this side, a little bit of cliff area right in here, and over on this side, another hill, and this is the valley of Elah right here in the middle, and that is supposed to be, or said where the battle site was, was down there towards that end. These are some other pictures of kind of the, the surroundings of the area. Some people think that this may be the path right here where the, where the Israelites would be up here on the top of this cliff area. That This may have been where all the soldiers came down and where probably even David may have come down that pathway. <clears throat> and Elah is named after uh, what is called a terebinth tree. You hear that word used often in, in the Bible, and it's really something that's similar to an oak tree or of that variety. So now, in verse, verses 4 through 7, Goliath is described. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet, of, uh, hel helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. So some facts about Goliath is he was about nine and a half feet tall, some Depending on which cubit you used, the Hebrew cubit is about 22 inches, and sometimes the Egyptian cubit was a little bit longer. But if we even take the 22 inches and multiply that times the, the amount of cubits, uh, he was anywhere from 9.5 feet to 11 feet tall. That's what the Bible says. Now this area back here in the back, this ceiling right here is somewhere about 8.5 feet tall. This may be somewhere in a neighborhood about 12 feet tall. So that gives you a little bit of an idea how large this man was. His armor weighed about 125 pounds. The head of his spear weighed 15 pounds, just the head of his spear. And it was probably certainly one of the best fighters that the Philistines had. One scholar, or several scholars, mentioned that somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 pounds is what all the armor of Goliath weighed. Well... Some of us aren't even 250 pounds and try to carry someone else uh, that weighs 250 pounds would certainly be a burden. The Bible describes Goliath as an undefeatable warrior. His size was almost twice the size of some of the, of the Israelites. It would certainly take a strong man to carry all that armor 
into battle, and he was, I guess, considered probably the ultimate warrior. So now Goliath challenges Israel in verses 8 through 11. Then he stood and carried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So here's Israel's reaction in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So, you know, Saul's looking at this and probably all those, those soldiers were looking at this man and going like, there's no way I can beat this guy. Who's going to step up? Apparently no one. And we'll find out a little bit more about that. Up until this point, all the armies of Kings, King Saul, there was one man that would step up to the challenge of Goliath. Certainly, what went through their mind, if I step out there and try to fight this guy, it's going to be instant death for me. It says, Now David was the son of the Ephrite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years, in the, in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul, but David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. And the Philistines drew near and presented himself Forty days, morning and evening. So we see here that this taunting of the army of Israel had been going on for 40 days now. And it would seem that one side, one side or the other, would get tired of this day after day after day, the same thing happening. And maybe someone would walk away, but you don't walk away in battle. If you do, you're called a coward. And nobody was going to do this. There's probably all kinds of, you know, you're the leader of people and, and, and you don't want to walk away and look like an, a coward and be called a coward. So while Goliath was challenging the army of Saul every day for 40 days, David was home tending his father's sheep. In verse 17, then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousands and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they all and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left his sheep with a keeper and took the things and went to Jesse, went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. Now, apparently, 
it seems as maybe they would spend the evenings up on the hillside and maybe then during the day they would come down down into the valley and stand in front of each other, across from each other, and then they would be taunted by Goliath saying, send somebody out here to fight me, send somebody out here to fight me. So they had drawn up in battle array, army against army, it says. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. So David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Here's really where somebody's got their mind in the right place and everyone else has got their mind in the wrong place. David is basically saying, who does he think he is defying the armies of the living God? Because David knew where his strength lied. And the people answered him in this manner saying, so shall it be done for that, the man who kills him. Now David's brothers question what he's really doing. In verse 28, Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David and said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. In other words, you just want to be a spectator. You don't want to be a participant. You're just talking big. Who do you think you are? You need to go back there and and take care of the sheep. What's your responsibility? And leave the battle up to us is kind of what Eliab is saying. And David said, what have I I done now? Is there not a cause? or is, Is there not a purpose for me being here, first of all? I was told by my father to bring supplies here and to see how you folks were doing down here, how the battle was going, and if you guys were okay... Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. So Saul hears about this and Saul sends for David. Now when the words of David spoke, which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. David coming up there, he wasn't on the battlefield lines. He wasn't up there in his armor and all this. All the rest of the Israelites were in their armor and their their battle uh, array, and so were the Philistines. And David comes up there, and, and basically Saul's saying, you're just a young Man, small in stature, how in the world do you think you can go up against this great warrior? This man has been a warrior 
since his youth. So David now defends the ability of God. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing, has defiled the, seeing he has defiled the armies of the living God. Again, here's that statement again by David. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. I want to notice something that came to mind here, for me anyway. Saul has now put all of his faith in winning this battle in this young man. He has all of his, his army there, and they have all their armor and all their swords and all their spears and all their shields and everything else. But now this young man comes up that's a shepherd, and Saul is now putting his faith in this young man. If he loses this battle, they will serve the Philistines. But I think Saul came to a realization because he's been thinking in one way, David is thinking a different way that he has God's blessing in this battle. And Saul, I believe, recognizes that now. So David prepares for battle in verse 38. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't wear I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. So no doubt, Saul's armor was the best armor. I mean, you, you want to protect the king. And the king is the one that's in charge. I would think the king would have the best armor of any of his warriors. And this is what Saul wants David to wear. But David can't even put this stuff on and do what he needs to do. He can't be nimble. He can't be uh, fast and, and take on this giant of a man with this. So he takes off all of this protection. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. Now that's not before David, that's before the Philistine. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. I'm sure that Goliath was really quite surprised that Saul would send this young man with no armor on out to do battle with him. If you're going to fight a battle like this, you would think Saul would send the very best soldier with all his armor, with all his weapons, and, it's, and, it, and to Goliath it probably seemed like just a waste of time. So he goes on to say, So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save the, does not save the sword and the spear, with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will go and he will give you into our hands. So he tells this Philistine, it really doesn't matter what you have. It really doesn't make any difference what you have, how much armor you have, how many weapons you have. I am here in the name of God, the Lord of Israel. And we and I will, will take you today and kill you, basically, is what he's saying. David knew his power came from God and was not the least worried about the outcome. He knew where he gained his strength. It was God. God was on his side, regardless of the weapons that Goliath had and regardless even what David had with him. Being a shepherd, David knew how to use his sling. He probably spent many hours out there just watching the sheep. You know, this isn't a... 24-hour day, even though you've got to be there 24 hours a day, if you want to say that. But you don't have to be busy all the time watching sheep eat grass. So he had probably plenty of time to use this sling and know how to use it to ward off the, uh, the, the um, things that would be danger to the, ship, to the flock. One thing a leader in war wants to do, is, wants to never do, is underestimate the enemy and Goliath stood there with all his armor, with his sword, with his shield, with all this in his hand. And David stood before him with simply a staff and a sling and, and five stones. But David had God with him. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. You know, even before the stone left the sling of David, God's plan and God's power was in that stone with David. God guided that stone, I believe, and made sure it hit the spot exactly where God wanted it to go. And that was right in the middle of his forehead and it sank deep into his head. 
The power of God was in that stone because God knew what was going to be the outcome and David knew God had the power to do what, what God wanted and that was that this Philistine be put to death. And the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Shearim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So what is the lesson for us? One of the things that we can gather from this is better to trust in God rather than men. The Israelites, Israelites had grown tired of God's style of leadership, and they wanted a king instead of judges to, to rule over them. So, so God gave them King Saul. The problem was the Israelites put their trust in King Saul and not in God. Saul was everything the Israelites wanted. Saul, from what I understand, was was a big man, but eventually a bigger man comes along and a bigger man showed up. Saul failed here in the story of David and Goliath. Saul and his army were putting their faith in man rather than God. They were putting their trust in King Saul instead of God. David comes along and has total faith in God and is able to accomplish in a few minutes what Saul had been dealing with for 40 days. Notice Psalm 118 and verses 8 through 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. That's what the problem was, as they had put their trust in Saul. Number two, it's better to trust God's methods rather than man's. David rejected Saul's armor and used nothing but a sling and a staff. And God wanted Israel to see that the people must trust in him and not big men. Now, if David had put on all this armor and went out there and fought this battle, they would have thought, well, he was lucky. But God made sure that, he, that David had the least of what he needed, but had the most power in what that was. And that is just a simple sling and a stone. So, they must trust God's methods and not man's methods. Some people today put too much trust in men, big men or big preachers, big churches, mega churches, if you want to say. Paul said in, in the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11 and 13, 11 through, 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's house, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, some follow these charismatic preachers, these charismatic churches, because it's what they like. It's what they want. We're not baptized into them. We're not baptized into charismatic preachers. Or men were baptized into Christ. Our loyalty is to Christ just as David's loyalty was to God. 
And Saul had forgotten that. Number three, it's better to trust God's method in our service to God. <clears throat> After David hit Goliath with the stone, 1 Samuel 17 and 50 says, but there was no sword in, this hand, in the hand of David. This statement really, real really kind of wondered why it was said again because we already knew that, that when David was putting all of Saul's armor on that he left it there. And all he took him with him was a staff, a sling, and five stones. So we already knew that David didn't have a sword with him. So why would a man go into battle if he didn't really need something? You'd be just taking extra stuff that you weren't going to use. It'd be extra cumbersome to you. But see, God already knew what was going to happen. That he would need a sword and a sword to be provided. The sword from Goliath. It was already there. All that it, all it happened is David slew him. David knew the outcome in this battle before he stepped onto the field. So the point is that David used an unconventional weapon when everyone else was looking at him wondering why he isn't using the conventional weapon and armor of the day. He used the weapon that God wanted him to use, not man's or Saul's wisdom and weapons. He put his trust in God and not man. We can't put our trust in the conventional weapons that the world has today that attracts people such as the entertainment of the big mega churches, human philosophies, human achievements, and, and, and so on. These things certainly attract large audiences and worldly-minded people to worldly-minded religions that will make them feel good, but those things are not going to save us. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So what is the weapon God wants us to use? The weapon that we should always use and put our trust in is the Word of God. It's the gospel of Christ that we can always put trust in. The same lessons that were taught years and years and years and centuries ago are still the same lessons and still the same truth today. And we can always put our trust in that, that it will always be the same. The Word does not change. The Word of God does not change, and we can trust it. The weapons of man cannot be trusted because someone always seems to come up with a better weapon, but there's no better weapon than the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1 verse 6. We are saved through the Gospel if we hold fast to it. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2. We are born again through the living Word. 1 Peter 1 verse 23. The Gospel sets us free. Romans 6 and verses 17 and 18. The gospel equips us for every good work, 2 Timothy 3 and verses 16 and 17. The gospel is our weapon, Ephesians 6 and verse 17. The gospel is simply the simple sling and stone that we use against all the evil things and spiritual giants in this world. And all David needed was trusting in God, and that's all the same that we need today is trusting our God. The world will tell you that you need more than the simple gospel of Christ. They will ridicule for, for using it only. 
But look what David did when he trusted in God and not man. You may be made fun of. You may be ridiculed for living the Christian life. David was ridiculed for standing there before Goliath was with a simple sling and stone. Goliath just made fun of him. You may be made fun of in your Christian living, your Christian life. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is weaker than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, Israel's faith was in Saul, the king they always wanted to, and looked up to. But Saul had lost favor with God, and David was to be the next king, king of Israel because King Saul couldn't save Israel. He didn't have God's support behind him anymore. It was David, and only God could do that. God used an armless youth with unconventional weapons and what seemed to be foolish weapons to defeat a giant Philistine for the purpose of letting all of Israel know that God is the one that they should trust in, not man. It was for that purpose that the directing of Israel's faith was to be directed back to God. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.